0: So we're here to start a brand new sermon series here today called The Away Game. Now, what we're talking about here in this series over the next four Sundays is the fact that we are no longer the home team. Christianity is no longer the home team in this world and in this culture, okay? We are the visiting team. So today we start with that message, the visiting team. And we're going to look into scripture and see how God uh, takes the opportunity to teach us and shape us and mold us so that we can be effective for him in a world that's pretty hostile, okay? But before we do that, let's pray together, okay? Father in heaven, I want to thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being here, for the opportunity to uh, spend some time in your word, Father, for the opportunity to uh, be taught through your spirit. And so, Father, I pray that uh, you'll help us to hear what we need to hear, to see what we need to see, and then, Father, apply those things to our lives. And I pray, God, you'll help us. Help us, Father, become more like you. Thanks for Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen and amen. Now, I've done research over the last few weeks about some of the most intimidating places to play if you're a visiting team headed in to play the home team. And uh, on those uh, scales, you see all kinds of places brought up. But what I did was I put all those together and came up with basically the top five of intimidating places for visiting teams to play in those stadiums. And so number one is, we found this one. Uh, This is IU Assembly Hall in Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. Very intimidating place to play. Now, I've been to games down there, and uh, in fact, I sat one year uh, just two or three rows behind the team on the sideline, and man, you could hear everything, some things you didn't want to hear, and um, you, you, I mean, the crowd on the other side is right on top of the floor, it's loud, it's raucous, and the visiting team has a tough time playing there. That would be one of those top five on all the lists I read about. Now, here's the second one. Cameron Indoor Stadium, Duke University. Now, if you've never been there or never had a chance to go to a game there or even watched a game uh, at Duke University, Cameron Indoor Stadium is unbelievable because the student body seats are right on the sideline across from the benches. And those students can actually touch you if you're taking the ball out of bounds. Now, they're not supposed to, and they don't, but boy, they can scream in your ear, and it's pretty intimidating to try to carry out what the coach is trying to have you do if you're on that sideline trying to do what you're supposed to do for your team. Here's the third one. Uh, Notre Dame Stadium, Notre Dame University, amen to that. Praise the Lord, okay. One of my favorite places I've ever seen a game. Uh, I've always been an Irish fan since my high school days. Two years ago, my old college roommate, Bart, and I, uh, both Irish fans, uh, went up to a game. And uh, man, we got to be there early. We got to hear the band play, hear the glee club sing all the great songs, and then watch the team walk from the administration building over to the stadium to get dressed. They're all in suits ties. I mean, it was an unbelievable experience. And then when you walk into that stadium, there's this aura of Notre Dame football and tradition. And um, anyway, it was a great day. We enjoyed it. Pretty intimidating for the other team uh, to come and do that. But that's Notre Dame Stadium. Next one, Michigan. University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, this stadium, listen now, this stadium on a game day holds 107,501 people. You think that didn't get loud? You think that doesn't get raucous from the home team? If you're the visiting team, you can really tell you're on the road, okay? But the number one stadium that, that I checked out and came up in the top five on every single list was this one, Lambeau Field in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Man, I'm telling you, that place, the older part of it, before it was renovated, that Lambeau Field was hard to play in, the crowd is loud, it could be snowing, it could be freezing rain, it could be sleet, it could be the frozen tundra, you know, that you're playing on. But the thing that makes us the most intimidating stadium to play in is this. The Cheeseheads, (laughs) their fans are called the Cheeseheads. And they wear these wedges of cheese on their head. And, and for a visiting team to see 50,000 people with cheese on their head, that's intimidating, okay? <laughs> that's intimidating. So those are intimidating places to play. But what about the church? What about the church? I mean, think about the church. In the year 350 A.D., it's estimated out of 60 million people on the face of this earth that 56.5% of those people were Christians. 56.5%. Well over half of all the people alive in that day, in 350 AD, they were believers. They were followers. Historians conclude that. Today in the year 2021, it's estimated by those who follow religions around the world and those who take up the stats and do all those things, it's estimated that less than 33% of all people, are Christians. And that's of every single brand and kind and everything else you could pull. My guesstimate is that we're somewhere around 25% of people in this world who believe in Jesus. We are no longer the home team. Christianity is the visiting team in this world. A visiting team in this world, it's a hostile environment. In fact, some of those places we talked about before, you can hear people say, man, I really don't belong here, you know, if you're a fan of the visiting team. And sometimes we say that in this world today, don't we? Man, I really don't belong here. And you know what? That's okay. Because you're not supposed to want to belong here. Because this world, we're just passing through it. And this is not the place where we consider home. But here is where we need to be. And so today, I want to take a look at what we can do in order to live out our lives for Jesus and to be on that visiting team and yet do what God calls us to do in this hostile world. Okay? I want you to take your Bibles or your devices and I want you to go to 1 Peter. That's late in the New Testament. And once you find 1 Peter, I want you to find the second chapter. We've already read some of those verses today. John had us do that. But I want to take you from verse 11 down through verse 21, and I want us to take a look at the three encouragements that we receive from the Apostle Peter that will help us live our lives in this hostile environment we call the world, okay? Beginning in verse 11, 1 Peter 2. Now, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers catch that, in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted under men, whether to the king or supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as a free man, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. And slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Hmm. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure that? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Hmm. three encouragements we received today from the apostle Peter three encouragements in these passages that will help us to live in this world as a part of the visiting team but a part of God's team and number one is this live a good life look back at verse 12 it's real simple he says that you're to be considered an alien and a stranger in this world now notice the bible doesn't say he wants us to be strange that's not what the bible says We're to be strangers in this world. In other words, not conformed to what the world's doing. Not giving in. Not caving in. Not being caught up in those things of the world. And in fact, it's basically telling us that we have to live in the world, but we are not to be of the world. Okay, The Apostle Paul wrote it best in Philippians 1. In verse 21, he said, To live is Christ. But to die would be gain. Now what he's saying there is that as Christians, as believers, if we're following Jesus and we die, we pass on, we get to go to heaven. Thumbs up. But the key is to live is Christ. In this world, we're to live like Christ. We're to be Jesus to those around us. We're to live like Jesus would have lived in this situation. To live is Christ. And to die would be gain. Now, I think sometimes we look at that and we say, "How in the world can that get done?" I want you to know that in this situation, we are in a in a situation where we need to see uh, people need to see Jesus and not us. They need to see Jesus in us and not us, not you. Okay? We need to live it out for Him. We need to do what He's called us to do, so that we're the example to the rest of the world. Bob Russell recently in an article I read wrote these words. He said, I'm convinced a healthy church in the future will not be a seeker-friendly church, but a dramatically counter-culture church. Without question, the church that pleases God is a church that courageously believes and behaves differently and is not conformed to the pattern of this world. Romans 12, in verse 2, I agree with him totally. I mean, there was a day and age, and I think it's still true, that we need to be seeker-friendly. I get that. I understand that. But I believe in a world where new, we're no longer the home team. We are the visiting team. We've got to take a stand for Jesus, and we've got to stand up for him. We have to be firm in our faith and not conforming to this world. We need to be counter to the culture, and that will draw people toward him. That's what we're asked to do. And you know why he asks us to do that? Because people are watching. People are watching us. People are watching what we do, how we live, what we say, where we go, what we decide is okay. You know, are you there? (laughs) Have you said things like this? Eh, that's not so bad. Or everybody does it. Really? Do Christians do it? Do followers of Jesus act like that? Do followers of Jesus say those kinds of things, treat people that way? The answer is no. And people are watching us in order to decide whether or not they want to be on the team, whether they want to be a part of God's team, the visiting team in a culture that is against Christianity. (laughs) I read this recently in the summer of 1805. 1805. A number of Indian chiefs came together in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation that was going to be given to them by a Christian preacher, a Mr. Cram, who had come from the Boston Missionary Society. And when they got there, he preached the sermon. And after the sermon, where he talked about the gospel and talked about Jesus and who he is and what we should do with him, a response was given by Red Jacket, who was the leading chief among these Indian tribes. And Red Jacket, among other things, said this Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place, these people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. And if we find it does make them good, makes them honest, and less deposed to cheat Indians, then we will consider again what you have said today. People are watching. People are watching how we live. People are watching what we say. And people are watching the visiting team to see if we are really going to play for God. That's what they're looking for. So, live a good life. If you live a good life, you set the example for other people, and you bring them toward Jesus. The second encouragement you find is found in verse 19. Did you see it down there? Where it said you need to bear up under pressure. You need to bear up under pressure. You need to be able to handle the pressure that's in this world of sin coming against you, of temptation coming against you, of Satan and his demons putting pressure on you to conform to them and not be distinct and not be different. <laughs> you see, we use this phrase in athletics and sports world called putting pressure on the quarterback. Pressure in the quarterback. And uh, every defense wants to pressure the quarterback. They want to give him uh, uh, as much pressure as possible in the pocket, because when he's in the pocket getting ready to deliver a pass, if he's got free and clear view, if he's got an easy time, if he's got more than four seconds to throw the pass, the defense is doomed because he can read the routes, he can see the defense, he can check off to other receivers, and so when a quarterback takes a snap whether he's in the pistol or the shotgun formation, when he takes that snap you can count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and a good quarterback will have the ball out of his hands at 1,003 or hereafter. Why? Because you got pressure coming. Now these days, different from when I played the game, these days, instead of having defensive ends, they have specialists. They now call them edge rushers, okay? And they specialize in putting pressure on the quarterback. Now, the one thing I see about that that's different and hard for the defense is that sometimes they're so focused on getting to the quarterback, a running back runs right by them they never seen. But their job is to put pressure. Their job is to come up on that quarterback and pressure him so he doesn't have a clear view of the field. Or he gets hit and he has to throw the ball away and those kind of things. That's their job. What do you think the job of Satan is against the team that plays for God? To put pressure on us. To give you opportunities to mess up. To give you opportunities to do and say and be things that you shouldn't be. And so Satan is going to make sure that you have plenty of opportunities with a lot of pressure in order to mess up for him. But you know what? We've got some help. You don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to face that kind of pressure on your own. You don't have to do that on your own. I want you to see some scriptures here that they will help us see that we've got help. Colossians 1.27, remember Christ in you. He's the hope of glory. Ah, I've got Jesus in me. I've got help when the pressure comes. The next one, Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Ah, oh, I got help. Jesus in me. And Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I've got help. When the pressure comes and it gets to be too hard, I know I can turn to Jesus. And that's why the scripture says in verse 19, bear up under the pressure. You don't have to do it on your own. You've got Jesus with you. He's going to help you do that. And you're going to have the opportunity to make good on the visiting team. And let the visiting team be seen in a good light in this hostile environment. Now, I think it's important that you understand that the church today is failing to do that. And we're the church, right? We're the church. In an article written by Ken Eidelman, my preaching professor at Ozark, that's been many moons ago, but um, but Ken Idelman wrote an article recently and he said there's five kind of churches in our culture today. Number one, there's the seduced church. Now that's a church that is compromising and, and blending the edges and, and giving into the culture, and they're condoning things that, uh, for example, like same-sex marriage, abortion, euthanasia, universalism, liberal theology, and more. And the seduced church is harming God's team because they're, they're not looking like Jesus to the culture. Then he said there's the secluded church. That's a church that gets really, you know, afraid of what's happening in the culture. So they just draw inward. They don't do anything. They don't don't say anything. They, They just seclude themselves and stay to themselves and do nothing. That's not what God intended for the church. The third church is a static church. The static church is a church that says, well, I'll tell you what we're doing. We're waiting for Jesus to come back again. And they sit around, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they talk among themselves, and they don't do anything in the culture. And then there's the segregated church, and that's the church, he says, that, that looks at the world and says, you know what, we've got to do something about this. And so they bunch up, and they get together, and they become warriors for God, and they take the Bible out, and they beat the culture over the head, and expect the culture to respond. That doesn't work either. So what does work? It's what Ken Eilman says is the maximum impact church. And he writes these words, instead of seeing the culture as a battlefield and Christians as warriors, those in the maximum impact churches see the world as a mission field and Christians as missionaries. The maximum impact church believes true change results from influencing the culture, not battling it. And the Maximum Impact Church is committed to loving God and loving people. It understands its partnership with Christ in the, com- in the accomplishment of the Great Commission, sharing the message that Jesus came to draw all men and women to himself and to make them disciples. I agree with him. A Maximum Impact Church. A church that's a visiting team in a hostile culture, and yet we're playing for Jesus. And we're going to tell the culture who he is and what he can do for them and how they can have salvation and then go to heaven if they follow Jesus Christ. That is bearing up under pressure. That is taking the pressure that Satan wants to put on us and putting it back on him. That's the second thing. That's the second encouragement. Here's the third one. Follow Jesus. Did you notice verse 21? He just simply says, follow Jesus. If you're going to have an impact in this world, and the visiting team is going to make a difference, you've got to follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is our pattern. He's, he's the person we should pattern our lives after. Now, when I grew up in Kokomo, Indiana, uh, we, we got four TV channels. And one wasn't very good. So we'll take it down to three. And on Sunday afternoons, I'd go home after church, and we'd have lunch. And then, on one of those channels, it's the only channel I could get football on, we could get the Chicago Bears. That was it. Every week, you got the Chicago Bears against the Detroit Lions. Chicago Bears against the Green Bay Packers. Chicago Bears against the Minnesota Vikings. Paul. (laughs) And every week... I saw the Chicago Bears, and I fell in love. I mean, literally fell in love. Sorry, Walter Payton. I fell in, I'm older than that. I fell in love with Gale Sayers. Gale Sayers was the epitome of a running back. Could stop and start and, you know, just flash. and I mean, I wanted to be like him. I wound up wearing number 40 in high school. That was his number. I wanted to be like him. After a game, I'd watch it on TV. I'd go out in the yard. I'd jump over the picnic table carrying a ball. I would jump over the hedges, maybe over the fence, stiff-arm the dog. I mean, I would just, you know, I mean, I would just wanted to be like Gale Sayers, you know. I wanted to pattern my football playing after Gale Sayers. But you see, the Bible says that if we're going to be effective in this world as a visiting team, we need to pattern our lives after Jesus and follow in his footsteps and be who he is and be like Christ. That's what we need to do. Why? Well, because he can protect us. The Bible says he's a great protection as well. Not just a pattern for our lives. He's the protection that we need. The Bible says he can protect us. And, and, and you know, in, in the NFL or any football game, a quarterback takes a snap, and if they're right-handed, which most of them are, as they take that, their first step is this. And they can see everything here, 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 and here. But what, they, what cannot they see is here. That's what we call the blind side. That's the blind side. That's the left tackle. That's why in the last 15 to 20 years, they're paying left tackles as much money as almost anybody on the team. You know why? Because he protects the blind side of the quarterback. Now, you don't want that edge rusher coming around that left tackle and hitting the quarterback and knocking him out of the game, do you? No. You don't want that guy coming around that left tackle and beating him and getting to the quarterback and creating a fumble. You don't want that. So you get the very best left tackle you can afford. And you hope and pray that he can protect your quarterback. You see, the Bible tells us that's what God does for us. He protects us. Let's look at some of the scriptures we find in the Old Testament. They'll help us see that. The name of the the Lord is a strong or fortified tower. The righteous run into it, and there they are safe. Ah, that's good. Go on. Psalm 61, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe, against the enemy. Go on. Psalm 62, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, O God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. And in Psalm 20, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. You see, our God's a strong tower, He is awesome, He is the only one that deserves that word. Now, I've told my class on Sunday mornings this. I'm going to tell you this right now. I don't use the word awesome for anything or anyone but God. Because when you say, man, wasn't that dessert awesome? That doesn't even come close to God. Okay. And you look it up in Scripture. The only time the word awesome is used is either in reference to God or to something he's done. Not to your 67 Impala. Not to your good-looking girlfriend just god so i save that word for him i don't use it for anybody else or anything else just him because he is he's awesome he's powerful he's strong and we can run into him and be safe you see god wants us to know that we can pattern our lives after him and that as we live out life in this earth as a visiting team, that he will protect us as we do so. We need to live for him. Way back in my high school days, I played at Taylor High School, just outside of Kokomo, Indiana. Taylor Titans, uh, if you don't know, I have some Taylor Titans down here. My sisters are here today, yeah. And um, Taylor Titans, and uh, I played football there, and our football field was designed so that after you played the game, as you came off the field... Uh, the players, we'd finish, we'd greet the other team, that kind of thing, and then you'd come over, you'd cross over the track, and then there was a gate, and you passed pass through the gate, and when you pass through the gate to go to the field house to change, the crowd from the home stands was coming this way, and you were going to go this way. So, you know, most of the crowd was gone, but every once in a while there'd be people there, and you would greet them and say hi, moms and dads, and sometimes a girlfriend, and that kind of thing. So we'd played a game at home, and we'd won the game pretty handily, and, and I was coming off the field, and uh, I noticed at the gate there was this uh, kid, probably, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, maybe 10 years old. And he's standing there, and he's watching the players come off the field, and he's got a program and a pen. And when I start to cross through the gate, he goes like this. I thought, yes, my first autograph, you know? <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I, But I looked at him and I said, okay, yeah. And I took the pen and wrote my name, put number 40, and handed it back. And I said, there you go, have a good night. And I went on to the field house. I'm sitting in front of my locker, probably 15, 20 minutes later, helmet off, finally got my pads off, I'm just sitting there trying to catch my breath. And um, one of the younger players who didn't get in the game that night, he's coming along. And of course, they don't even shower, you know. They didn't sweat, they they run right out and go on their date, you know. so he's come along and he stops in front of me and he says, hey, I just want to thank you. I said, for what? He said, you know that little kid that you stopped and signed the program? I said, yeah. He said, that's my little brother. And then he says this. He said, he thinks you can do nothing wrong. He watches everything you do on the field. That cut through me. Because I always really believed that I was a Christian first and a football player second. But I began to think that night as I sat there, my mind was racing. I was going, okay, okay, what did I do? What, what happened in the game tonight? What, did, did I argue with an official? No, I didn't do that. Did he take a cheap shot? No, I didn't do that. What did I do? Because that little boy thought what I did was the right thing. The world's watching us. We're the visiting team. And they're wanting to know if this Jesus is real. Is he? Is he real to you? Kyle Adelman, lead preacher at Southeast Christian Church, Louisville, Kentucky, about three years ago, wrote a book. And in his book, he told this story. He said one weekend he was preaching in Houston, Texas. And after the sermon... He said some people were talking to him afterwards, and then he noticed coming toward him, now remember this is in Houston, Texas, was this big man, big Texan. He said he had a big stature, a big belt buckle on, you know, and, and as he got closer, Kyle said, and he had big tears in his eyes. He said as he got there, he said, Kyle, I just want to tell you, he said to my daughter, graduated from high school recently, she went off to college, and she's totally left the to faith. She's compromised everything we ever believed in and everything we thought she believed in. She's just gone wild. And Kyle said in his mind, he thought, well, I've heard this story before from different parents, and he's going to want to ask me what, what happened. He said that it never came. He said this man said, said she's just gone wild, and then he said this. He said we raised her in church but we didn't raise her in Christ. Whew. Oh she knew the rules and regulations but she didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And she knew when she was wrong but she didn't understand the grace of God. The world's watching. And we're the visiting team. And they want to know who this Jesus is. Verse 24 will tell you that we need to die to sin and live to righteousness. And then verse 25 is going to tell you that you need to return to Jesus, who is the overseer and the shepherd of your soul. And you see, there are some of you here today who think you've been living for Christ and you're on the visiting team, but you're doing more damage than you are good because you're compromising with this world. And there's some of you who've never come to Christ. You've never made that decision. You don't belong to him, and yet you know deep down you need to. It's decision time at Chapel Rock. It's your opportunity to make a decision today. According to verse 25, if you think you're a believer and yet you've not been doing so well and you've been messing up, you need to return to the overseer of your soul. But if you've never made that decision before, if you need Jesus in you, and I believe we all do, then you can make that decision today. You can walk this aisle. You can give your life to Christ. We'll baptize you into him. And you can start right now being on the visiting team. Well, let me remind you of something. Just because we're on the visiting team, and some of us will be on the visiting team our whole lives, remember this. In the end, you're on the winning team. You're on the winning team. And you don't have to compromise. You don't have to make excuses. You don't have to conform to this world. You don't have to give up. God's going to give you the power to live the life you need to live, and you can be on His team today. Today. But it's up to you. You get to choose. You get to choose. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And while we sing, won't you come and make that decision for Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, uh, we live in a hostile world. You told us, Jesus, that the world's going to hate you, and so the world's going to hate us. That's pretty hostile. And Father, you told us that, um, that this world's going to be a rough place because this is basically the playground of Satan. But you didn't leave us alone. You gave us your Holy Spirit. You give us the power of running to you. You give us the, the strength that we find in our Savior. And so, God, we know we can do this. We can be on the visiting team and still make a difference in the lives of others. So I pray, God, you'll give us that ability. I pray that you'll feed that in us. And, Father, if there are those here today that need to make a decision for Jesus, they need to come and, and, and submit to To their Savior, then I pray they'll do that. There are some who need to come for prayer, some who need to come and and surrender to you once again, some who need to come back to the overseer of their soul. And I pray that'll happen as well. We just pray, Lord, that you'll watch over this very time, decision time. I pray your Holy Spirit will be active in every single heart, that Father will respond to what you're calling us to do. We want to thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen and amen. Why don't you stand and sing with us? And as we sing today, if you have a decision to make, why don't you come forward?